Greetings and welcome to episode four of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we're going to be talking about what we know as the Book of Odes. Now, the Book of Odes, this is one of the earliest extant literary documents that we have um, in East Asian history. Uh, it goes back probably, we think, way back to 1000 BC at the earliest, some of the earlier poems, and for the next thousand years, essentially, the first millennium BC, uh, the Book of Odes, the, the, the poetry, the songs that are being recorded in it are being developed and adapted and reworked and eventually codified. Um, the Book of Odes is known as one of the original five Confucian classics. Okay, um, It's going to be read widely throughout East Asia. Uh, educated elites in what we now think of as China, Korea, Japan, for a time in, in uh, Vietnam, they would have read the Book of Odes. Okay, they would have read it as one of many Confucian classics, uh, the other ones being the Book of Documents, the Book of Changes, the Book of Rites, and the Spring and Autumn Annals. Now, the reason that I like to focus on the Book of Odes to the exclusion of the other four is that the Book of Odes is the only classic that's even remotely digestible to our eyes and ears today. Um, I've actually tried to teach and read the other four classics in class before, um, and it's pure torture. Uh, it's pure torture to try and read these things, and it's not just a question of translation. If you were to read them in the original Chinese as well, uh, the Book of Documents is a bunch of, you know, imagined fake speeches that were attributed to great men in the, you know, the imagined golden age of Chinese Huaxia civilization. Uh, you get the great man discourse in spades there. The Book of Changes is a divination manual. Uh, there's basically no narrative story there whatsoever. It's how to interpret the signs of the world um, and see what your fate is going to be. Um, you usually find that on the, the uh, bookshelves of New Age bookstores, uh, or at least when we actually still had bookstores. Uh, now you'll find it in the New Age section of Amazon.com, I, I, I imagine. Um, and then you also have the Book of Rights, which is... You know, hundreds of pages of how to interact with other human beings, uh, how to appease your ancestors and do the right sacrifices, what sort of clothes you should wear on this day and for this occasion. Uh, again, pretty tedious stuff. Um, and then the spring and autumn annals. You definitely don't want to read the spring and autumn annals. Uh, this is basically a really dry record of the day-to-day -day affairs of you know states that existed during the life of Confucius. Uh, Today, the king woke up and brushed his teeth. Uh, today, he had an audience with Duke Leo. Uh, you know, stuff like that. Uh, today, it rained, um, and this was good for the crops. <laughs> okay. Uh, the Book of Odes is the only one of the original five Confucian classics that is still readable today. And, uh, you know, many people, when they read the Book of Odes, they can actually get... Oh, dare I say pleasure? I don't know if I would say pleasure. It's not really a pleasurable, pleasurable experience, but it's, a, it's an interesting experience. That's the word that we're going to go with. The Book of Odes is still interesting for us to engage with. Now, the Book of Odes, a lot of times all of these five Confucian classics, I refer to as the Book of Odes, Book of Documents. Um, for much of subsequent East Asian history, they would have been referred to as the five classics, the classic of odes, the classic of documents, the classic of rites, these sort of things. Um, but we're not going to use that word yet because that actually comes about relatively late. It's not until the Han Dynasty, 200 BC to 200 AD. It's not until the Han Dynasty 
that the Book of Odes actually becomes codified, written down, and there's only one, you know, a small handful of versions of the Book of Odes um, that becomes canonical and fixed and finally unchanging. Um, for the previous thousand years, from the early Zhou period, remember we talked about the Zhou, the first significant major uh, Huaxia dynasty, all right, uh, the Zhou dynasty is really flourishing for about 200 to 300 years, 1000 to 800 or 700 BC or so, um, and a lot of the earliest poems that appear in the Book of Odes, uh, we believe, go back all the way to 1000 BC, to the earliest days of the Zhou dynasty. Now, are these odes? Are they songs? Are they poetry? Uh, I like to go with odes, all right, sort of fudge the matter and not choose one or the other, whether it's poetry, sort of you, you, you imagine something that's written down, um, songs, you imagine something that's purely oral, uh, uh, you know, something that you hear and is spoken, and odes to me is somewhere in between, so I kind of prefer the book of odes. Um, but I, I want to keep the book in there because a major shift occurs in the lifespan of the book of odes. All right. Originally, they definitely were designed for performance. There were both music and words, and the music was considered more important than the words, which changed. The actual lyrics, the actual words to these poems or songs, however you want to describe them, um, they changed and they were readily adapted. And they were not seen as sacred and unchangeable until they're written down and codified for the last time during the Han Dynasty. You know, it's five, six, seven, eight hundred years later than some of these odes were first put down on paper or first passed on through the, through the generations. But we actually know for, you know, a good first thousand years or so that these odes were in existence and being passed down from generation to generation. Um, people like Confucius talked more about the music that accompanied the odes than the words themselves. Confucius actually almost makes almost no reference to specific words and lyrics um, that are in these poems. He pretty much just criticizes the improper music that he thinks is accompanying some of these and saying this is degenerate music, this is licentious music, um, but he actually pays very scant attention to the words of the odes themselves. Now, so all original dissemination of the odes was oral and it was retained in a, in a mnemonic sense, all right, retained in memory. Um, eventually, you know, by 6, 500, uh, 400 BC, you're going to see some master copies being recorded on silk or bamboo slips in prominent regional families. Um, there likely would have been enormous variation in each one of these versions of the odes. Okay, but, you know, there, there would be some tradition of these odes, uh, an, an attempt being made for these odes to be written down. All right, now, what is the larger significance of the odes? We need to address this question before we actually get into the details of what they contain. All right, the larger significant of the, uh, significance of the odes, if there's only one thing you're going to take away from today's episode, is that the odes and the, and the other four classics, which we can't bear to actually read, um, they mark the beginning of a widespread East Asian, what I would refer to as an imagined community of civilized people. For the next 
2,500 years, okay, if you are someone who has attained an education or has aspirations of becoming an educated elite, someone who serves in the government, anywhere from the deserts of Central Asia and the northwestern parts of the Huaxia cultural sphere, all the way to the Japanese islands, you will read the odes. And you will see it as a sacred text in which all the knowledge in our world worth knowing is contained therein. Right? There may be things that human beings don't know, but that stuff is not worth knowing. Everything that is worth knowing is known. And you can access that knowledge by consulting the five Confucian classics, of which the Odes was considered to be one of the most important. Poetry will always hold a very dear place in the Confucian literary canon. All right, the Odes were considered extremely important, especially since they are one of the few classics that deal very directly with raw human emotions. Okay. Now, we have about 300 poems, 300 odes that exist today. Undoubtedly, there were originally many more. Probably double, triple that number. Okay? Uh, but we have about 300, and I'll give some examples, uh, relevant examples to the themes and topics that I want to bring out in today's episodes. Everyone who read the odes after the music is long gone, and you can't recover the music anymore, and it really is a book of poetry from that point on, because no one's performing these things anymore. Everyone in East Asia read the Book of Odes essentially as a foreign language, along with all the other classics. Okay, No one was born, even people that you would now identify as, oh, he's Chinese. No one was born speaking a native tongue that was identical to the script and language that the odes were first spoken in and first recorded in. Okay, today, if you go to China and you go to the bookstore and you want to find, you know, the book of odes, you want to buy your own copy, unless you're going for a scholarly edition, you're going to probably find something that's printed in what's known as a Baihua edition, plain speech, in which essentially it's been translated into present-day northern Mandarin Chinese. Okay, just like with the oracle bones, to go back and access the original script, the original form of the language, the Sino-Tibetan language in which these odes were composed and then written down, you basically have to study a second language, even if your first language is one of the Sinitic languages. All right, and this goes for all the classics, not just the odes. To think, oh, it's written in Chinese, so the Chinese have a leg up when they want to read the odes. That is not true. They have to learn to read the classical ancient forms of Chinese, just like the Japanese and the Koreans and the Mongols and the Manchus have to do. This would be the same as if I said, as if you said, oh, I, I was born and my native, uh, my native language is English. Uh, okay, go back and try to read Beowulf, the 8th century poem composed, uh, you know, recorded in England. Uh, go back and read Beowulf and come back to me and let me know how, how far you were able to get. This is what English, this is what Old English sounded like 1,500 years ago. These are the opening lines of Beowulf. 
Huat Wegardena in Yerdagum, Theod Kuninger Thrimjurfrunen, who the Adelingas Ellen Fremadon. Do you understand a single word that I said? No. It's essentially a foreign language. Just because it's related, it's the ancestor of modern-day English, does not mean it is the same as modern-day English. And every language, Chinese is the same. There's no exception to, China, to, to, to the Sino-Tibetan languages. All right, everyone in East Asia is studying the original language of the Odes, classical Chinese, as a foreign language. Okay, this is why when I, I always emphasize this is the Huaxia cultural sphere who set the standard for what it means to be a civilized person for 3,000 years in East Asia. And everyone can aspire to join that cultural sphere, regardless of what we now think of as ethnic groups and races. All right. Now, where did the odes come from? So we have about 300 of these extant songs that have been turned into poetry once the music is lost. Um, well, there's a wide range of topics, which is why it was said that the odes contain everything there is worth knowing about the human experience. You just have to find the right ode and the right interpretation. All right, we know that some of the earliest odes that go way back all the way to 1000 BC contain a mix of elite rituals and ceremonial hymns that were probably created and performed by the ruling elite of the Zhou dynasty and their sacrifices to their ancestors and all the various wine ceremonies and things that they had. These are probably chants and poems that uh, were performed while these rituals were being uh, uh, um, enacted by the ruling elite. We also see less formal things. We also see poems that uh, seem to be a mix of political and social banter, again, among educated elites. But then we also have a lot of poems, and this is unique, um, for all, the, all five of the Confucian classics, it's very unique that the odes also contain a great number of poems that seem to relate to the common daily lives of the uneducated, illiterate masses who labored in the fields. All right, so in that sense, this makes the odes, in a, you know, in a second way, um, one of the more interesting of all the ancient five Confucian classics. Now, later commentators then went one step further and said, oh, because we see for the first time what seems to be, you know, a quasi-authentic glimpse of the life of the masses, um, what this must be is the Zhou, the Zhou dynasty, the Zhou ruling elite sent officials out into the fields to collect folk songs so they could understand the people's welfare, engage the success of its rule, sort of they want to gauge the mood of the people and are they happy with our rule. This is a little, you know, too rosy for my ears, the idea that you have the sophisticated uh, public relations PR regime in 800 BC in which officials are going out. And can you just imagine this guy sitting in the fields, you know, hiding behind a tree, listening to the poems or the songs that are being sung in the field by the peasants and writing it down on a bamboo slip and going back? I don't think so. Okay, I, I don't think so. I think this is swallowing uh, later Joe propaganda wholesale. All right, there may be some truth to the method of collection. I mean, somehow songs that were sung in the field did end up getting passed down among educated elites who lived in palaces in urban cities, urban walled cities, and these eventually did get written down, absolutely. Um, you know, it's guesswork to imagine how that might have actually happened. Um, but 
I don't believe that that was the motivation was to gauge the mood of the people and then say, oh, the son of heaven has to adjust his policies because the people aren't happy with his rule. All right. I mean, there could be a lot of reasons why folk songs would get incorporated into the sort of things that the educated ruling elites um, pass among themselves. Uh, I like to think of it as a ready store of raw material, raw literary material that can be adapted and reworked for any number of contexts, any number of agendas. And the uses of the odes were manifold in the early days. Later on, once it becomes codified during the Hong Dynasty, later on, the range of interpretation of the odes will narrow considerably. There will be you know, a couple orthodox interpretations of what each poem means. Uh, but in the early days, it's apparent that the poem, you know, uh, this is a large mishmash of very diverse material that all gets thrown together probably for different purposes and in different ways, sometimes to critique a ruler indirectly, sometimes to praise him, sometimes it's a folk song sung in the fields, and sometimes it's an elite ritual behind closed doors. Now, I want to give you some examples of the various themes that we see in these odes. Okay, and unfortunately, this is the one time I'm going to actually like read poetry to you. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to be reading the version that's freely available online. Uh, no copyright issues by James Legg, a, uh, a uh, Scottish missionary to China uh, in the 19th century. He was the first person, uh, English-speaking person, to translate many of the Confucian classics into English. But, uh, of course, he translated them into this stilted, uh, sort of a King James, Victorian-esque type of language. So it sounds a little strange to our ears today. But it is English. Um, English that, again, proves my point that every couple hundred years, language and speech changes so much, even in an age of mass communication and travel and media. Um, just 120 years ago or 130 years ago, whenever James Legg was making these translations, uh, his English already sounds a little strange to us. Um, all right, first, let, let's begin with um, one of the most obvious topics, um, the, the Book of Odes as propaganda for the ruling elites of the Zhou Dynasty. Now, uh, we'll go here with ode number 250, Duke Leo, and it goes as, as follows. Of generous devotion to the people was Duke Leo, unable to rest or take his ease where he was. He divided and subdivided the country into fields. He stored up the produce in the fields and in barns. He tied up dried meat and grain in bottomless bags and in sacks, that he might hold the people together and glorify his tribe. Then with bows and arrows already, with shields and spears and axes large and small, he commenced his march. And then the second stanza repeats the first stanza. Of generous devotion to the people was Duke Leo. He had surveyed the plain where he was settled. The people were numerous and crowded, in sympathy with them. He made proclamation of his contemplated measure, blah, blah, blah. All right, it's get, starting to get tedious now. You can understand that Duke Leo is a pretty swell guy who cares for his people. Remember, the Zhou was the first dynasty to come up with the mandate of heaven, that the ruler deserves to be in power by virtue of his virtue. <laughs> Duh, that was the Chinese word for it. And because he's a virtuous person, uh, Heaven smiles upon him. He deserves to be in power. The moralizing of political power begins with the Joe. And this poem clearly is trying to put some substance behind that. Oh, here's how we prove that the king of the Joe dynasty is a, uh, deserves to be king. Ode number 250. It wouldn't have been known as ode number 250 back then. Ode number 250 proves it. 
Boy, does generous Leo care about his people and his realm. Ode number 263, always mighty in war, begins thus. Full of grandeur and strength, the son of heaven looked majestic. Leisurely and calmly the king advanced, not with his troops in masses nor in broken lines. The region of Xu was stage to stage and moved. It shook and was terrified, the region of Xu, as by the roll of thunder or its sudden crash. The king aroused his warlike energy as if he were moved with anger. He advanced his tiger-like officers. King's getting ready to go to war. Okay. The country was reduced to orders. To order, sorry. Its chiefs appeared before the king. Securely kept was the country about the bank of the Huai, occupied by the royal armies. All right, the king goes out and conquers undeserving other kings or aspirants to his throne. And everything's well ordered. Isn't the son of heaven a just and wonderful ruler who punishes those who deserve it? What you actually notice a lot of times in the poems of the Odes is that war is described or the preamble to war is often a subject of the poems. You know, the long, boring, tedious descriptions about the troops ranging in order, getting their weapons ready, the sun glinting off their armor, the brave and obedient officers who are leading them, all this sort of stuff, and they march off to war. But then you never actually hear, see the war get described. It never actually happens. Um, and, and that is a recurrent feature of the Odes. Um, there is a relative absence of violence and suspense. You know war is coming. You know bloodshed is occurring. But the poem stops just short of sort of giving the listener a window into that. For example, if you're familiar at all with the literary canon of Western civilization, uh, you know, it often begins with the Iliad, uh, the Battle of Troy often sometimes described as the greatest war poem ever written. And God, is it, is it brutal? I mean, Homer, if Homer ever existed, takes perverse delight to my, to my eyes in describing the horrid violence and brutality of the Battle of Troy. My God, there's all, you know, stanza after stanza about this guy's intestines being ripped out, a spear smashing through a, a skull, and the, this detailed description of teeth being knocked out and chin bones smashed gives you nightmares. You don't see that in the Book of Odes. Now, don't read too much into this. Don't take the wrong lesson away from this. I've had students come up to me when I make that point before I've had time to really finish the rest of the point and say, ah, it seems like ancient China was uh, you know, more nonviolent. They weren't so warlike. Um, and I have to disabuse them of that notion very, very quickly. Um, I'm sorry, but the poem describes that a big war is about to occur just because it actually doesn't describe the horror of that war. doesn't mean that the war didn't take place. All right, remember the Oracle Bones, the earliest uh, extant record of the Chinese script. Some of the very first things that are, that are being discussed, one of the most prominent topics of the Oracle Bones is about going to war. It's just as much war and death and suffering and torture um, in East Asia as there is anywhere else in the world, please don't idealize it. And one of the best ways that we can uh, put some substance behind this claim is with our next poem, our next ode. Ode number 131, the oriole, like the bird, 
Huangniao in modern day Chinese pronunciation. All right, it's describing the burial of Duke Mu. All right, a prominent aristocrat has died, he's being buried. And this ode describes the scene at the burial. All right. They flit about the yellow birds, the Orioles, and rest upon the jujube trees. Who followed Duke Mu to the grave? Zichi Yensi. That's a person's name, by the way, in modern day pronunciation, unfortunately. Was a, I'm oh, sorry, Zichi Yensi. And this Yensi was a man above a hundred. When he came to the grave, he looked terrified and trembled. Thou azure heaven there. Thou art destroying our good men. Ugh, James Legs, Victorian English. Could he have been redeemed? We should have given a hundred lives for him. Second stanza. Repeat the Orioles. They flit about the yellow birds and rest upon the mulberry trees. Who followed Duke Mu to the grave? Zichu Jonghung. And this Jonghung was a match for a hundred. When he came to the grave, he looked terrified and trembled. Thou azure heaven there. I'm not going to repeat James Legs, Victorian English again. You get the idea. All right, two stanzas describing two very brave men who were a match for a hundred other men. And when they approached the, the grave of Duke Mu, they, they were terrified and trembled. Are you able to guess what this is describing yet? Human sacrifice. Remember, we know the Shang engaged in brutal, disgusting human sacrifice, sawing skulls in half. I sure hope... That the people who were being sacrificed were dead before they did that. Oh my god. Um, but hey, human sacrifice accompanies the death of Duke Mu as he goes to the grave, taking his attendants and servants along with him to the other world. Now, what other sort of topics do we have? There are some fairly interesting ones in which you don't really know if this, how this got into the odes. Because keep in mind, for the 300 odes that we have today, for them to be passed down generation after generation for 3,000 years, they had to pass through multiple literate hands, powerful people, because writing is very expensive, bamboo strips, silk, and eventually paper. That ain't cheap. At least not in those days. Literacy is rare. For this stuff to actually be passed down in a fixed form that, that uh, uh, stays with us today, um, powerful, educated people with a political interest in preserving them and spending money to preserve them. Uh, that has to happen generation after generation for 2,500 years. Okay? And yet, despite this, there are some poems that you can't get around the fact these seem to be indirect criticisms of officials and the king. And we don't really know how these got in here. Maybe they were taken at face value, and the double meaning wasn't really read into them at first. Um, who knows? But let me give you some examples. One of the most famous ones is known as Big Rat. Ode number 113. Here we go. Large rats, large rats, do not eat our millet. Three years have we had to do with you, and you have not been willing to show any regard for us. We will leave you and go to that happy land. Happy land, happy land, there we shall find our place. I feel like such a dork reading poetry out loud. Um, no open mic for me. Large rats, large rats, do not eat our wheat. Three years have we had to do with you, and you have not been willing to show any kindness to us. We will leave you and go to that happy state, happy state, happy state. There shall we find ourselves right. All right, so 
Large rats, large rats, don't eat our millet, don't eat our uh, wheat. Okay, sounds like the typical concerns of a peasant in the fields. Nothing wrong with that. But wait a second. Three years we've had to, be, we've had to deal with you, and you've not been willing to show any kindness to us, so we're going to leave and go to a different state. All right. It, it, this is not a rat. This is a metaphorical rat. Because you don't expect a rat to show you any kindness. And if you have a problem with the rat, you don't say, well, I'm going to go to a different country <laughs> where they don't have rats, the country of no rats. No, that doesn't exist. This is, this is, this is an indirect criticism of a rapacious lord or king or duke who's taking too much from the people. Were they just obtuse and they didn't realize the double meaning? Or was this an official, a lower official who collected this, who was upset with, his, with the duke and said, he's going he's gonna to get overthrown if he keeps exploiting his people like this. And, he, and so this lower official collects this poem and keeps it in there and thinks, maybe he'll think it's just about a big rat. <laughs> I love that idea. Uh, and maybe he did. But here we go. It's here. There are other poems as well. Ode number 234. Every plant is yellow. Every day we march. Every man is moving about, doing service in some quarter of the kingdom. Every plant is purple. Every man is torn from his wife. Alas for us, employed on these expeditions. How are we alone dealt with as if we were not men? We are not rhinoceroses. We are not tigers to be kept in these desolate wilds. Alas for us, employed on these expeditions. Morning and night we have no leisure. This is, these are men on military expeditions, on forced marches. It never ends. And they say, why do we have to suffer so much in the employ of the king's army? I don't know how this gets in there, but it did. Right, that's a criticism of the people in power. Ode number 40, the Northern Gate. Is this the lament of a magistrate? This would give you some... some some, some credence to the idea that uh, lower-level officials are going out and collecting poems as a means to subtly criticize those who are above them, the kings and the dukes, the son of heaven. I go out at the north gate with my heart full of sorrow. Straightened am I and poor, and no one takes knowledge of my distress. So it is, heaven has done it, what then shall I say? The king's business comes on me and the affairs of our government in increasing measure. When I come home from abroad, the members of my family all emulously reproach me. James Legg, what does emulously mean? Come on. Ay. So it is. Heaven has done it. What then shall I say? The king's business is thrown on me, and the affairs of our government are left to me more and more. When I come home from abroad, the members of my family all emulously thrust at me. <laughs> Emulous. So it is. Heaven has done it. What then shall I say? Uh, this is a pretty unhappy magistrate, lower-level official who complains about the king's business and the affairs of government and how it keeps him away all the time and his family <laughs> treats him emulously, <laughs> whatever that means. I don't think it's good. Okay. How does the king approve of this unless the king's not paying attention to this stuff? All right. Is this, is this a rival state collecting a poem and trying to attribute it to another state's magistrates? Who knows? But hey, there's a lot of room for veiled criticism of those who are in power in the odes. That's one reason for its staying power. Anything that's, any, anything that's going to become a classic and lasts forever um, needs to be diverse enough that 
lots of different people with different agendas can find fodder and ammunition to pursue their agenda and read into it what they want to read into it uh, based on their time and circumstance, which is going to change over time. So the more varied and diverse you are, the, the better chance you're going to have of a, a, a literary work being passed on if everyone can find something in it that speaks to them. Now, the literary legacy of the Book of Odes. It is your East Asia equivalent of any number of the Western epics, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, okay, or the Bible is a, you know, even a better one. Okay, think of all the poems and songs that probably originally had music on them um, in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, the topics are diverse. They encompass pretty much all aspects of the human experience that you can imagine. Anything that you want to have um, literary precedent to discuss, you're going to find it somewhere in the verses of the Bible. You'll find it somewhere in the Iliad or the Odyssey. Okay, uh, windows onto the daily concerns of people from all walks of life, as we've seen. Now, what's going to happen to the Odes is that originally it's this real random mishmash of poems that gets cobbled together, and a lot of things are probably just lost, you know, for no premeditated reason, just in dissemination. You know, the reason, the 300 poems that we have today, a lot of those are, exist just by chance. Let's not overthink this. All right, there wasn't a deliberate effort. Oh, just these 300 poems and only these 300, and these are the exact 300 we want. I, no, that's not how these things work. There's going to be a lot of luck and contingency involved in which ones happen to get preserved and entered into the canon when it's recodified during the Han Dynasty. But there's another level of interpretation that's going to be foisted upon the Odes. A moral interpretation of the Confucian thinkers. Now, why do I keep talking about Confucian? Why is this a Confucian classic? Confucius isn't even alive yet. How can you call stuff a Confucian classic when Confucius hasn't been born yet? Doesn't make any sense. Well, what's going to happen is that eventually Confucius will be imagined by later generations of literate elites throughout East Asia to have personally edited what become known as the five Confucian classics. In other words, it will be thought, almost certainly erroneously, by the next 2,000 years of East Asian thinkers, um, that Confucius, when he lived, you know, 6th, 5th century this era, middle of the first millennium BC, um, that he personally decided, in his infinite wisdom, what were the most important classics, literary tidbits of the past that he had access to, to preserve. And so those 300 poems in the Odes are there because Confucius chose every single one of them. He edited them. And they're, they're, they're laden with double meanings that only Confucius could really know. Because he decided that this deserves to be in here. This is worthy of preservation. If you don't get the lofty moral meaning of any one of these 300 poems, it's your fault. Not the poem's fault. Read it again. Go back to the Analects and Confucius and see what, you know, what, 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 how he probably would have interpreted this. Okay, it's your fault if you don't get the, the lofty moral meaning of all the odes. It's not, it's not Confucius's fault. It's not the poem's fault. And so these are known as the Confucian classics because they'll have the imagined stamp of approval of Confucius himself who now, very few historians think that Confucius personally had a hand in editing these, except for the spring and autumn annals. 
the driest and most tedious of all of them, from which you can scarcely cull any larger meaning from it. Um, that's the only one that historians will still say, you know, he might have had a hand in that one. But not the Book of Documents, not the Book of Rights, not the Book of Changes, and certainly not the Book of Odes. I mean, he may have been involved, he may have had his copy, and he may have known, He obviously he knew about it, he complained about the music. <laughs> not the words, he complained about the music that he heard being accompanying some of the songs. Okay. But the Confucian gloss that gets foisted upon the odes long after they were first created, um, this will be very important for later generations, all right? Because there's a lot of risky, racy, raunchy stuff that goes on in the odes. Oh, raunchy is too strong of a word. It's not like that. Um, but it's it, it, it pushes the boundaries of what might be seen as acceptable in polite society. Um, and this is not okay for later thinkers. Okay. I know this is all very abstract. Let me give you some examples. Gender relations are a common theme in these 300 poems. Okay. You have a lot of distressed ladies and heartbroken men. Okay. And you have the insinuation of sex and some of them also not sex, gender, sex, the activity. All right, that's, that's got to be dealt with. That can't just stand for what it is. Let me give you an example. Ode number 88. Fun and good-looking was the gentleman who waited for me in the lane. I repent that I did not go with him. A splendid gentleman was he who waited for me in the hall. I regret that I did not accompany him. Okay, well, a splendid gentleman, good-looking, waiting for me. That's a date. That's a possible, um, how do you say, uh, mating connection. And I really regret that I didn't go with him. That's not really, really explicit, but there's undertones there. Or is it overtones? I don't know. Undertones, overtones, right, of, uh, of uh, you know, stuff going on in there. Here's another one. Ode number 76. I pray you, Mr. Jong, do not come leaping into my hamlet. Do not break my willow trees. Do I care for them? Yes, but I fear my parents. You, Jongzi, are to be loved, but the words of my parents are also to be feared. I pray you, Mr. Jong, do not come leaping over my wall. Do not break my, my mulberry trees. Do I care for them? Oh, I fear the words of my brothers more. You, O oh Jongzi, are to be loved, but the words of my brothers are also to be feared. I pray you, Mr. Jong, do not come leaping into my garden. Do not break my sandal trees. Do I care for them? Blah, blah, blah. I dread the talk of the people. You, Jong, are to be loved, but the talk of the people is also to be feared. Now, here we have a description of a man leaping into my hamlet, leaping over the wall, leaping into my garden with such urgency that he's breaking willow trees, smashing mulberry trees, and ruining a garden. The show hastens to remind him, oh, it's not that I care so much about that, but I worry about the words of my parents, the words of my brother, the talk of the people. This is a nighttime liaison. This is a tryst. And she's afraid that my parents or my brothers are going to beat the shit out of you if you come in and try to seduce me. And I kind of want to be with you, but there's other considerations that we have to take into account. The people will gossip. And that's no good. My parents will get involved, and my brothers. <laughs> you better watch out for my brothers. 
So how do the how do the later Confucian officials deal with these sorts of poems? They can't stand as is. That's not okay. Now what they do, every time you have a, a, a man and a woman in some sort of romantic love type thing, um, it gets reinterpreted as officials and their kings. All right, uh, two educated elites, men of unequal power relations. One is subordinate to the other and there's tension between them. You know, the king wants his ministers to do something that the minister disagrees with or is worried about. And so a distressed lover becomes a distressed minister. And the king, you know, the the, uh, aggressive lover jumping over the wall is the aggressive king hurrying to go to battle or enact some sort of exploitative policy. And the minister is trying to say, but wait, the people will talk. (laughs) <laughs> my brothers, i.e. your cousin, are going to kick your ass if you, may, if you enact this policy. So be careful. All right, what's the joke they have about uh, the difference between you know, uh, regular rock and roll and Christian rock and roll? All you got to do is change every instance of the word baby to Jesus, and you've magically turned rock and roll into Christian rock. <laughs> I love that one. That's, that's perfect for what we're talking about with the odes. Every single time you see relations, risque relations, even alluded to between a man and a woman, that's clearly some sort of romantic sexual thing going on. Uh, you reinterpret that as the relationship between a minister and his king. All right. Uh, and, and that's how many of these poems will be reinterpreted. Another major theme is agriculture. If you didn't know it already, we're dealing with an agricultural society. All right, remember I said in history becomes interesting when small groups of people gain the power to exploit large groups of people and thus have a surplus of agricultural goods that they can trade and use to go to warfare, to go to war, to build ever bigger palaces, uh, nicer chariots, uh, you know, this sort of stuff. And all the things that we like to go to museums to today and marvel. Wow, Chinese civilization was so great. Western civilization is so amazing. Look what they were able to create. Yeah, but they were, it's not like this was for everyone. This was the exploitation of the 98% for the enjoyment and satisfaction of the 2%. Uh, And the 2% would have said, hey, civilization is us, not them. We are the civilized, the 2%. The 98% are the uneducated, unformed, immoral masses that we need to, you know, get in line and improve. And that begins with hard labor. All right, anyways, that was a long roundabout. Uh, the concerns of, a, of, an agrarian, of an agrarian society are paramount in these poems. There is delight in naming everything that is involved in the process of harvesting a field. Ode number, tw- uh, sorry, ode number 290. They clear away the grass and the bushes, and the ground is laid open by their plows. In thousands of pairs, they remove the roots, some in the low wetlands, some along the dikes. There are the master and his eldest son, his younger sons, and all their children, their strong helpers and their hired servants. How the noise of their eating the viands brought to them resounds. Uh, Then with their sharp plowshares, they set to work on the south-lying acres. They sow their different kinds of grain, each seed containing a germ of life. All right, getting tedious now. All right, every aspect of work in the fields being described. Even have Look at this. (laughs) And the well-nourished stalks grow long. Luxuriant looks the young grain, and the weeders go over among it in multitude. Boy, isn't this exciting. A poem about picking weeds. All right, regardless of the origins or original motivation 
of these 300 poems. The Book of Odes becomes the most well-known collection of poetical records of ancient life in all of East Asia, okay, from Japan to the entire breadth of the modern-day PRC. It was assumed that it recorded the life of a comparative golden age. Studying the Odes and the other four classics would give you access to the wisdom and knowledge of a day and age in which a memory of a perfect world was still retained, even though obviously there's some bad stuff going on. All right. Regardless of the content, the meaning, the interpretation, the Odes are the ultimate source base for carrying on polite, educated, and subtle discourse in group gatherings. Okay, Just like the Greek and Roman classics and the Bible will serve the exact same function in Western civilization. You have educated elites get together and they want to, one, one wants to prove their superiority, their moral superiority over the other. In the course of their conversation, they will make allusions and draw examples from the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Bible to help reinforce the point that they want to make. They'll have an apt quotation that they've memorized and they'll pull it out, they'll whip it out in public discourse and say, take that as Jesus said. Jesus is on my side and here's the quote that proves it. All right, that's what the, that's what'll happen with the odes. Let me give you an example. The, uh, the Zhou Zhuan, the commentary of Mr. Zhuo, dated to 541 BC. Or, or, I, um, sorry, it, this is the piece I'm going to read, describes an event that was purported to happen in 541 BC. The ministers of two rival states are partaking of a banquet where both sides strut their stuff and attempt to intimidate and humiliate the other side before the inevitable outbreak of war. The two sides are feeling each other out. Probably under the pretext of trying to make peace, but you know that never happens. You just have to go through emotions of acting like you care to avoid war. Avoid war. How do you prevail? How do you claim the ground of moral superiority? Well, you cite the odes to prove your point. Let me read a passage from the commentary of Mr. Zwoll describing this banquet between two rival ministers. The chief minister of Chu, the state of Chu, feasted Zhao Meng of the state of Jin and recited the first stanza of the poem, Major Bright. Zhao Meng then recited the second stanza of the poem, Diminutive. When the affair was over, Zhao Meng said to Xu Xiang, a minister of Jin, The chief minister presents himself as king. What will become of it? He replied, "The king is weak and the chief minister strong. How can he? Uh, sorry, the king is weak and the chief minister strong. He can succeed at becoming king, but even if he does succeed, he will not come to a good end." This is Byzantine politics. You don't need to know the details. All I want you to pay attention to is what gets brought out to prove the point that each side wants to make. Zhao Meng asked, "Why is that?" And then he replied, "When the strong man overcomes the weak and is contented with the situation, then the strong man is not righteous." One who is not righteous, even though strong, will meet with a speedy death. Those are big, bold words, aren't they? How are you going to get your audience to be on board with what you said and really truly grasp the profundity of your, 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 your speech? You cite a poem. Here's the last line after he has these strong words. A song says, quote, Majestic was the capital of Joe, but Lady Bao Se destroyed it. End quote. Joe was strong, but not righteous. 
Alright, that's pretty obscure Byzantine stuff. Alright, but the one thing you should have taken away from that is when two educated elites from rival states get together, they try to impress the other one and prove the superiority of their specific argument by citing the odes. What is this? One, two, three? At least three different odes were cited from memory, verbatim, to support the point that was being made. Alright, just like you would have the Bible or Homer or Virgil. Uh, quoted by Western elites when they get together. And each one's showing, you know, yeah, I've, I'm more educated than you. Uh, I'm more moral than you. And therefore, my state is better than your state. There was criticism of the Odes and the classics, but not by the Confucians. You know, the Confucians were the ones who had the greatest vested interest in putting their moral interpretation behind the Odes and propagating their use. Um, there was criticism. Uh, the Taoists often criticized the way the odes were being used. Uh, Zhuangzi, one of the most famous Taoist philosophers, who we'll get to eventually in a few episodes, um, he was very critical of what he called the Confucian use and abuse of the odes. He said that the Confucians invoke and cite odes as a disguise for base self-serving practices. All right, he said Confucians will loot a tomb or they'll go chasing after uh, families that have a death in the family, because Confucians, as, as we'll see, originally sold themselves, portray, advertise their services as ritual experts that you have to have when someone dies. Okay, you have to have a Confucian who knows the death rites, or else they won't pass into the next realm peacefully. And he would say that the Confucians justify their practice of seeking personal financial gain through their expertise as uh, ritual experts by citing an ode I hear Duangzi is suggesting that any ode can be cited to justify abhorrent or selfish behavior. And the very fact that you cited an ode means that your audience will just assume, oh, it must be benevolent, lofty purposes for which this person is doing this. Otherwise, he couldn't cite an ode to support what he's doing. All right, so criticism certainly existed. But what we really need now, we really need to understand the Confucian role in all of this. All right, so we're going to end our discussion of the odes here. And the next episode, we're going to finally get to the man himself, Confucius. And we're going to talk about Confucius, Confucianism, and the Confucian classics and what the difference is between all of these. (laughs) 